regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello, listeners. This is Datacast, where your long-form and in-depth conversation with data ML practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Dran Romano, the co-founder and VP of engineering at Quark.ai, AI, where he's focused on building the next generation ML infrastructure for ML teams of various size. Before Quark, Rand led the data and ML engineering groups at Wix.com, where he built Wix's internal machine learning platform. Previous to that, he was a technical product manager at the East Raleigh Intelligent Corporations. So Rand, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Hey James, thank you. Thank you very much. So yeah, by way of introduction, I believe that you are from Israel and you did both yes, your bachelor and master degree in computer science at the uh, Richmond University uh, throughout the 2010s. So can you share briefly about your upbringing as well as your educational experience there? Yeah, I studied both the BSc and MSc at the Reichman University. Before that, actually, I was in the army for three years. I was with the Israeli Intelligence Corps. Mm-hmm. And that's where I kind of, uh, I don't know if my high tech career, I can say that, but kind of the tech inspirations started. And the Israeli Intelligence Department was probably the highest density talent place, location, or, or workplace that I've ever been, and, and I believe probably will ever will be. And that really inspired me to do something uh, related to building things, to building things in terms of technology. And this is why I actually uh, went to both the BSc and the NMSc at the Rachman University, where they focus a bit more on the practical side of, of computer science, of, uh, of software engineering. I'm curious, so you mentioned you spent time working as a technical PM for the Israeli yeah. military, right? Yeah. What does that job like entails? What are like some of your tasks to support the army? Mm-hmm. Can't specify too much, unfortunately. But the general idea, it wasn't called the product manager. It was more called like a technical project manager. But as I grew up, understood the definition is pretty much the the same. The idea, my role was to kind of bridge the gap between the more intelligence-oriented personnel at uh, the intelligence between the technical side, the people that actually built the systems, okay, that the intelligence folks were developing, okay, and kind of bridging that gap, understanding their needs, translating the needs into actual systems, uh, that was part of my role. And I think that, you know, a PM or product manager is something that is, is kind of a more of a common term these days for this type of position. I see. So translating some of the intelligent requirements into actual concrete technical systems. Yeah. It was actually a lot of the times just, you know, being a translator. Okay, just, okay, I need uh, this and that capabilities. Please build it to me. No, why would I build it for you? It's such a stupid uh, question. So I was the, the mediator um, in a lot of these uh, in these conversations. Yeah, and I think that, that having that skill set of like understanding the, the business lingo and the technical language is definitely valuable as you yes, move on towards later on your career. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned you study yeah. computer science at Rashman University. Do you recall any of your favorite classes that you took? 
So my favorite class, one of the favorite classes was, of course, uh, machine learning, introduction to machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the courses that we had over there was really, this is what kind of uh, this and probably Andwenji introduction, introductory course uh, sparked my interest in machine learning. Another mm-hmm. thing, another course that I really liked was graphics. And that really kind of blew my mind. Like we, we built a ray tracing engine, we built like a, a small a computer game. So building on these rendering engines, uh, all types of things that actually, you know, and you, you can see the actual pixels on your screen. Most of the time I did backend, most of the time afterwards, if, uh, even I'm mostly doing backend. So having a graphic course and actually building something that you can visualize, that you can show is actually a really cool, uh, really cool experience. Thought about going that direction, but that I passed on that rather fast. <laughs> see, machine learning, computer graphics, be able to see the concrete engineering work being translated into mm-hmm. a visual that you can see, right? Yeah, the first time when, when on the ray tracing engine, when I draw, uh, when we draw a ball on the screen, a blow that is three-dimensional was, was wow. I was really proud of myself. <laughs> okay, yeah. You study CS from university and for your first job out of college, you work as a software engineer at VMware's cloud provider software business unit. Uh, what were some of the major projects that you contributed to during your time at VMware? So the project that I was working on was, uh, wow, well, I don't actually remember the, the full name, but it was, well, correctly, it was a CSP. So it was cloud solution provider. It was part of VMware's initiative to build more cloud-based solutions or cloud-based integrations and for their hybrid cloud or what they called initially hybrid cloud. But it was very my first steps in the, in the software engineering world. And, and I must say that I, I learned a lot from that experience, but mostly not for the good part. Like I can share that. Second, from what I say, that most of the part, we didn't really know, like the engineering team in Israel was really disconnected from the product side, who was at Palo Alto. And this was a valuable lessons I learned while managing those teams, while engineering and also product teams. These two functions should be probably in the same place, should be co-located and should be very much close relations because otherwise the engineering part, like this was my experience. I, most, a lot of the time, I just had no idea what I was developing, for whom I was developing, what is the timeline, what's the urgency of what we're doing and that. Like, I, I thought that's the standout. But as I, I moved on to Wix and to you know, other companies, I understood that this wasn't a good practice. Okay? You, you can't just have people tell you, listen, I need this API and that API. Okay? One of the, the key takeaways I took that, that I'm trying to apply every day in what I do is that, is that the engineers, uh, the data scientists, no, no matter what, should understand, should understand the impact of what they're doing to understand who they're developing and why they are developing. Otherwise it's just full mess. It's, it's disconnected and people, you know, churn from at least my group at a very high rate. I see. So what you said is like, it's important to have the engineering function and the product function to sit together so that they can collaborate more efficiently so that the product can relate the business requirement in a more... Even on a more basic level, it's super mm-hmm. important and it might sound trivial, but it wasn't really trivial for me to begin with. It's super important that the engineering teams are not just execution forces, that they should be very close. They should be very aware of the business, very aware mm-hmm. of the problem they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes Especially sense. in remote teams, actually. Especially yeah. in remote teams because we were the remote team. Yeah. The Israeli team, we were the remote team for the Palo Alto site. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just curious right now in this remote environment, how do you suggest engineering to be more closer to customers? Should they just like sit in customer discovery call with sales and business? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a, a great question. Uh, can I test from what we're doing at Quark? Mostly engineers or at, at the moment, like the, rather a small company, they don't usually sit in a lot of discovery demo calls. This is mostly a, a sales job mm-hmm. or sales or solution architect, these are types of things, but they're very close to the customer in a few other places. One for direct support. In many of the cases, they actually go on conversation with the customers and try to help them solve the problems, trying to help them with using our product the best. And more than that, even on the engineering timelines, when we're actually developing something, so I'm usually very stressing out that this feature was requested by that customer that needs to do this for his business use case. Okay, and then when the engineer finishes developing that feature, so I usually go on a, on a call with the customer and says, this is the guy who developed your highly requested features because I want them to, to understand there's someone behind that customer request. I see. So like both from support function and then as well from... Yeah, a- it, there are trade-offs. There are trade-offs, of course. Like support burden sometimes can... Things that I'm, I'm working on daily. I just had a conversation or a long conversation about that uh, today, but it comes with a cost. Like the, the burden of support on the engineering teams is high at that point. But I think that at our current stage, it is worth it. Yeah, it's important, especially at the early stage to really be close with the customer needs, right? Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So you work for about more than one year at VMware, and then mm-hmm. in 2016, you joined Wix.com to work as a software engineer focusing on data infrastructure. For the listeners who are mm-hmm. not familiar with the organization, can you provide a brief overview of Wix and what motivated you to join at that point? Mm-hmm. So Wix is basically a website building company. Okay, that's the, the main business. It's a B2C business to consumer. They build your presence online, whether you're, uh, you want to set up a site for your wedding, or you want to set up a small e-com site, or you want to manage something for a, a group of friends or, or a small charity that you are trying to work. So basically, it's, it's a no-code web tool, no-code web flow web creator. This basically Wix or the main idea behind Wix and actually joined the data engineering or or the machine data. Yeah, it was at the time the data engineering group because I mostly wanted to get closer to the data and and eventually even machine learning and machine engineering. This was the places that I was more interested into growing into. VMware was doing a lot of mostly backend kind of a classical backend API, and I wanted to get much more into the, uh, the data world. Hadoop was a big name back then. I really wanted to go to a place, to a company where data is a large part of what they're, they're doing. The B2C company with then, I think, 100 million customers and a very fancy data infrastructure was a place I really wanted to, to go to. I see. Oh, Chris, how big was WIC at the time that you joined? My I think it was around 1,500 employees. It's pretty big already. Uh, yeah, pretty big. It was one of the, the bigger companies in, in uh, the bigger high tech companies in Israel at that time. And um, if I remember, last year's we, we have a lot more, but, but yeah, it was one of the biggest Israeli uh, companies. And, and also another point to what you just asked that I wanted to join basically a company whose headquarters were in Israel, partly because 
again, that burning experience that I wanted to be close to the base. I wanted to know what I was working on. I wanted to understand what product am I delivering. There were, there still is a lot of enterprise, a lot of companies that have uh, development sites in, in Israel. We have Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook. We have basically Amazon, all of that bunch. But I wanted to join an, an Israeli-based uh, company. Where, uh, the headquarters are here. Well, the heart of the company, uh, both the business, the product, the engineering are part of Israel. Yeah, I think in a remote world, it matters less. But in 2016, it, it mattered a bit more, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it sounds like you, you want to work on a company based in Israel and also want to sort of transition more into data engineering from your Move, yes. moving from backend to an engineer and eventually ML, right? So that's the sort of main motivation mm-hmm. for joining Wix. Mm-hmm. So at Wix, you actually led a team of software and data engineers in building an end-to-end big data and machine platform that was designed to address the end-to-end machining workflow, including components such as data management, model training, model experimentation, model evaluation, model deployment, as well as model serving mm-hmm. and model monitoring. Would yeah. you mind going over the architectural design of this platform at a high level? Yes, but even before that, I want to go over the motivation a bit on what was behind that idea of even building that platform. So I can go through a bit on, on the evolution of data and machine learning at Wix to give a bit of a context. So I joined the data infrastructure department. Basically, it was something like around five people were very much focused on data infrastructure, on building self-service tools for the data consumers at Wix, where we had a lot of data data consumers. I, um, I like to think about it as the way we, that we were kind of a small B2B company inside of Wix. Our customers were Wix's data consumers, which were, I think, the top around 250 analysts, 100 BI developers, data engineers, and a few other 100 product managers, which weren't really our our customers. But our main customers were data engineers and analysts. So the idea behind everything that we build is that we have to make everything self-service. We can't really build a data infrastructure where every analyst that wants to understand a piece of data, I want to integrate a piece of data into the platform, okay, should come to us because we were a small team and there was no way we can scale with the business. We didn't want to scale in headcount, I mean, uh, with the business, right? So the entire mindset was self-service. How do we create a tool or how do we create a platform? Basically, no one should talk with us, okay? That if you want now to integrate a new event into the system, a new, uh, we call them BI events. For example, you created a new functionality in Wix's restaurants. Wix had a restaurant component. So you wanted to track the add dish, for example, button. So if you wanted to analytics functionality to the add dish button, so we wanted to give an SDK for the backend developer that should implement this functionality. Mm-hmm. And from there on, it should just magically appear in the uh, Wix's da- data lake. Without any manual intervention from us. And that required a lot of building tools and even internal UIs for the backend engineering teams and, and for the analysts. Okay, so this was the general mindset for the data infrastructure. And after I think a year, year and a half around that, we started noticing there's also a big gap coming up in these sort of areas for data scientists. Data science group at Wix was growing fast from, I think, 10 to around 20, 30. And before I left, I think it was something around 60, 60 people. And basically they had the same set of problems. They were growing way too fast. They lacked the proper infrastructure in order to deliver 
their models, their solutions into production. So we thought about, okay, let's replicate the process. How can we, as an infrastructure group, give the data scientists the tools to, and that was the vision of, of again, connecting it to the ML platform. That was the vision of Wix's ML platform. How do we give data scientists, and now we call them machine learning engineers, but it wasn't really a term back then, three years ago, sorry, not, not that long ago, but we thought about them as data scientists. How do we give them the tools to build, deploy, maintain, and monitor machine learning models in production with minimal engineering effort? Okay, mm-hmm. this was kind of, when I did a presentation, this was my one-liner, my vision. Mm-hmm. Hey, if a data scientist needs to talk to me in order to get his model into production, then I fail. And then I did something wrong. Okay, yes. If he doesn't even know I exist, great. That's a great place to be in. Yeah, thanks for sharing the motivation. Can you briefly walk over the architecture design of the platform? I didn't have a chance to watch over the talk that you gave. Basically, there's data management, there's a new system, there's some model repo, and also the prediction service. Could you mind over some high-level component of that platform? Yeah, sure, of course. So as you said, let's go over that in that part. First part was the data management part, which was the, basically the big part of that. And a big portion of what we did was the feature store in a single discoverable source of truth for features, okay, based on the concept uh, that we designed at the time of a single feature definition. And so this was one part. We can dive into that if you'd like. And of course, I'm just going at on a higher level. Yep. And then we had the CICD mechanism, the model repository and build slash CI system, depending on how you look at it, which we based on MLflow, so a very early adapter of MLflow. And at the time, I remember going into the data AI conference three years ago when they published MLflow and like, okay, I'm going to use that. This really closes a nice gap in what I'm trying to do. So I really put that in production really fast. And the next part was the UI, the in-house basically management console, which was the central place for the data scientists at Wake to manage the features, the data sets, and the models they deployed via the platform, via Wix's machine learning platform. And the last piece, the more production leg of the platform was the centralized prediction service, basically the API or the backend API for the platform, which acted kind of, uh, I like to think about it as a gateway for the machine learning models themselves, which at the time we hosted on SageMaker. Yeah, thanks. So this was the general idea, like kind of a, a back office view for the data scientist and a production a leg that knows how to speak the Wix language with the APIs, the gRPC protocol and, and everything else. Yeah, thanks for sharing the high-level architecture of the whole platform. And I do want to dive deeper into the two components that yeah. I think is most important with that platform. So you already mm-hmm. kind of mentioned the first one is the feature store, which is desired single, created, and discoverable source of truth for features. And the second component is the CICD system designed for creating reusable and reproducible experiment. Yeah, so can you unpacking some of the architect of these two components in more detail? Of course. So let's start with the CI/CD system. So basically the general idea, like what my first idea was, I came to this problem as the software engineer that I was okay, and said, okay, they now need a standardized way in order to deliver their models into production. One of the problems that we're trying to solve is the dependency between the data scientist and the ML engineering team that was at that time in a place that was a very manual process. Like data scientists created models by, I mean, trained the models on their usually local computer and then created a pickle file in a lot of the cases or just handed over a Jupyter notebook 
change the model and tell the ML engineers, please do something um, with that. And that was a lot of the life cycle at the time. And, and we wanted to really reduce the dependence, give a tool set for the data scientists or give a standard or a certain structure for the data scientists in order to deliver their models faster into production. The idea is please create an interface, please inherit from a certain base class, like we did all the models were in Python. So please inherit from this specific base class, use Wix build CLI. Then you'll have a deployable Docker container, which you can deploy via API or via the management console. That will create a model endpoint behind the prediction service, which exposes a REST and gRPC API that the larger Wix ecosystem can now speak with. Okay, instead of going through that very kind of famous right now, I think ping pong between data scientists and engineers that, okay, this is a picker file, please containerize it, please make it an API, version it, and, and all of these sort of things. So, so the idea is, was again, create a build and deployment system to, to automate the entire procedure. This was the idea for the CI CD part. And the second part was the feature store. Okay, so the feature store came from, I think, two and a half motivations. One, we had a very big project with, I don't remember if it was premium prediction or churn prediction, that on every new iteration of the model, every time that the model switched hands, there was a large effort around feature engineering. And by feature engineering, usually what that meant was a lot of SQL scripts, creating data sets and creating tables. And the problem was, with that was that these SQLs weren't really, were very hard to maintain. Okay, the data sets that they created weren't very reproducible and they couldn't even be shared with other projects or other models that were deployed at that time at Wix. Like predicting premium, if a user is going to upgrade to premium or predicting churn, used a lot of the same features. There was no really way to connect the features, to reuse the same feature definition. Okay, so the idea was to create a single discoverable source of truth of features, which an actual a feature registry, again, with the UI and with the management platform in order to control that, in order to understand which features the team already created and you can just use. And the second part was eliminating a lot of the manual work that the engineering teams did in order to translate the features that the data scientists wrote in SQL to production, okay, to translate them into API calls. This was especially hard for online models. Why? Because what happened, and we see that in a lot of other companies, data scientists, again, or machine learning engineers, build their features on top of analytical data sources. Whether you have Snowflake, you have BigQuery, you have Redshift, you have all of that analytical ecosystem. Okay, so we create feature engineering pipelines, whether it's on SQL directly on top of these data warehouses or in Pandas or whatever way. And now when you want to deploy that model specifically as an online um, application, then you need to adapt those feature pipelines into a production flow. Suddenly you don't have BigQuery, you don't have Snowflake in production, right? You need to answer every prediction request in order of milliseconds at the time. So you can reuse that technologies. So the idea it was how do you bridge that gap? How do the data scientists still have ownership on the feature engineering part, but still we create two legs for them. One leg should be for model training and the second for model serving. This was the general idea. Okay, creating a single feature definition that was not only just discoverable and reusable, but also can be shared or used against both training and serving. This was a big problem at the time. 
Yeah. And the idea of the feature store that was built at Wix was kind of a, what we call a virtual feature store. And a lot of the feature stores that we're seeing today are very highly materialized feature store that they actually persist all the data all the time on, two, on a dual database architecture. This is kind of the feature store 101. You save the data one in an offline storage whether it's, it's Parquet, Delta Lake, Iceberg, these sort of things. And second, in a key value store, you know, Redis, Dynamo, these areas, you have the feature values persisted over there. And in Wix, we took a bit of a different approach and we actually originally wanted or materialized these features only when they were requested, only when we needed to generate a data set or only when we wanted to create a prediction in real time. I see. So the benefit of virtual feature store versus a materialized feature store is that it's something I'm still debating today, um, <laughs> but it had three obvious trade-offs. First benefit, I would say, is that in Wix, there was something around, when I left, around 5,000, I think there are something like 8,000 features, you know, feature pipelines. So having 5,000 features or 8,000 features all the time materialized both to an online and the offline on top of uh, three terabytes of data per day and can cost quite a bit. Be very expensive and a lot of data um, is moving around whether feature pipelines are getting broken. So um, a lot of moving parts, a lot of data moving around everywhere. So it's, it's, uh, it's high maintenance and it's very high cost. So this was an obvious benefit. You, have, you might have 8,000 features, but basically a feature once it's created, it's just a definition. It doesn't actually do anything. Mm -hmm. And so that was very cost-effective. But the main downside was, especially for the offline feature store, was that it was very time-consuming to create data sets. Actually, this was a large portion of what my team did at Wix, trying to optimize, trying to find kind of a middle ground between the non-materialized approach, which worked well, and the materialized approach that would have saved a lot of time on, on generating data sets because it's very annoying to try to generate a data set to train a model and having to wait one hour, two hours just to, okay, this data set doesn't really work. I need to create another one. So the, the interactive experience of that feature store in that specific architecture wasn't great. This was something that we wanted to work on and we eventually thought about, but we, I haven't got the chance to implement some kind of a hybrid architecture. This is actually the place that we're going with Quack, where you have several features that are materialized, fully materialized, and you have several features that are created on the fly, created or, or materialized only when needed. Yeah, and we talk more about Feature Star later on in the conversation when we discussing your current role with Quack. Before that, so thanks for sharing the details mm -hmm. of how team at Works built out this CICD system as well as the feature store component. Actually, when I watched the talk that you gave towards the end of the presentation, you concluded with three key lessons for organization looking to build an internal machining platform. Number one is that software engineering practices do not always play well with machine learning. Number two is that data management for online models is very challenging. And number three is mm -hmm. having a good way of monitoring model KPIs in production is crucial so yeah, can you briefly explain this lesson in more deliberate detail? Yeah, of course. So the first one, yeah, software engineering practices don't always play with ML. So as I said before, I approached the ML engineering problem at the time from a very software engineering perspective. I said, okay, build is a concept that works extremely well for traditional software products, for traditional software projects. Why shouldn't it work here? 
okay? Same notion of a build. When you commit something to Git, then it triggers a build operation. You have deployable image and, and all of that, okay? So it did work, but not to the naive notion that I believed in. Let, let's take, for example, the build process. My naive notion of doing an ML build actually invoking a training procedure on every push to and every change to the model code that was pushed to, to GitHub was, was kind of problematic because training is, is a process the data scientists usually tend to have, and, and I fully understand, of course, and they tend to want much more visibility. They want to inject parameters. They want to stop doing that in the middle. They want to run hyperparameter optimization, right? So they like running multiple builds in parallel. Um, and all these sort of things, okay? So kind of hard saying, okay, build process, this is what we're going to do and not trying to adapt those concepts, those well-defined concepts that work in other domains, not trying to adapt them into the ML world was a key lesson that I specifically learned. It was, mm -hmm. it was my mistake. Yeah, I see. My lesson learned, I don't know if I can call that. And the second, data management for online model is very challenging. This is basically, again, the concept of a feature store, which was an evolving term. Okay, how do we now create an online feature store? How do we keep it very much aligned with the offline feature store? How do we mimic all the feature engineering parts that data scientists are doing with pandas? How do we understand if they can scale well? They meet latency requirements. So adapting feature engineering processes to online models to meet production SLAs was a very challenging issue that we faced a lot. And the third one was, oh, yeah, having a good way of monitoring model KPIs. So one of the good decisions that, that we made to begin with was always having eyes on what the model is right now doing in production. It's something that we're seeing, actually, not of companies did back then. I've seen a lot more companies doing that right now. Is actually kind of logging aside what their model is not right now doing, like what the model got as input and what the model produced as output. Because I saw teams, even big companies, saying I deploy a model into production and I have no idea what the actual engineering teams are giving me as input and, and we are providing as output. We just don't have it anywhere. Okay? So just this simple notion of logging every prediction request kind of transferring into a data lake and having it queryable by SQL, something that we did from the start, and it was very, very valuable. I didn't understand how much valuable it will be, but this was the basis for the entire iteration of how you gradually build and deploy better models into production, just having logging and an SQL interface for data scientists. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for recapping some of the lesson in details. You spent close to five years at Wix, right? I'm curious, towards the end, right before you left, what was some of the impact of the ML platform that you have built? What was the impact? So I can share a bit about the numbers. At the time, I think we had somewhere around 200 models. I'm not sure how many of them were online, how many of them were distinct, but we had around 200 models on top of the platform, something around 5,000 features, which was the, the ecosystem was really booming. It was really great to see that from a data science department that started with five or 10 models in production, suddenly there was all these use cases, all these models starting to pop up on top of the platform as, as an infrastructure engineer that was very satisfying to yeah. see. Yeah. I'm sure everyone can be much more self-serve. I still read the creation and, and delivery of ML within the business. Mm -hmm. Stepping back into your career before talking about your current role, 
In your last year at Wix, you served as the engineering manager overseeing the data and malfunction of the company. From the experience of hiring for your team, what are some of the essential attributes of an exceptional data and ML engineering talent? So I had a few teams. I had both teams in Israel. I had teams, two teams of data engineers in Ukraine. I can say, I'm not sure regarding, again, level of experience or anything around that area, but something that I noticed and I'm looking actively for now is basically, I call it, doesn't really translate to English well, but like hunger the willingness to win, okay? They care about what they're doing. They really want to be part of the product, part of the thought process. They're not just, okay, let me build this part and let me go home. They want to be part of the process, part of the thinking part. They want to talk with users. They want Mm -hmm. to understand the problem better. This is what I at least identified as kind of key qualities for the highly productive people that I met with and the people that I'm also trying to recruit these days. Like I want people who want to win. I want people who are, are again, good at what they do. Of course, we're not compromising on that. But as I tend to, as I gain more experience, I think that I rely more on these types of personas, that, that ambition, that willingness to do what, what, whatever it takes in order to make a customer happy or to build the best product, to build that product in time. So these sort of, of more personal characteristics, they matter more than experience Yeah, in my perspective. I see, yeah, hunger, willingness to make customers happy and as well as do things that deliver it in time. And I think I tie back to you know your answers in one of my previous questions, which is talking about how engineering can be more customer-centric, right? Earlier, mm-hmm. we talked about like being supporting customers and you know really having that mindset about how the features of the product I'm building have a certain business impact, you know, and then that really is more even important in in startup environment. Mm-hmm. And we we'll talk a bit about hiring later on as well. But since January 2021, you have been the co-founder and VP of engineering at Quark, which mm-hmm. aims to build an end-to-end machine engineering platform to automate the machine learning ops. So, can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, it's actually a, a nice story. I think. Basically, the other three co-founders started thinking about this space before I joined. The CTO, Yuval, came from AWS and also Lior, the COO, came from the business side of AWS. And alongside Alon, the CEO was the VP data of Payoneer. They met, they thought about what area they want to approach, what area they have added value or an inherent advantage. And they really came into the ML production space, a lot of due to... Yuval and Alon, previous experience at AWS and, and Payoneer. And one of the early validation calls they did right when they started the company, they kind of met with data science managers, data science leaders at a few other companies. And they pitched them with a certain like system or PowerPoint of a system, actually, like few slides, listen, we identified the gap, the data scientists are having a hard time being productive, hard time being productive because they have a lot of troubles deploying their models into production. Okay, so, so Yuval, which I worked briefly with at the time at Wix, approached me and they said, hey, we're building a new, starting off a new company. We would like to hear your uh, thoughts on that. So we went up on call and then they said, okay, production, this is the area that we are going, ML in production. It's not relevant for, doesn't have a lot of companies that actually have a mature machine learning ecosystem, mature ML product. This is what we're going to build. This is the screenshots of the system that we are going to do. And I just, you know, I laughed a bit and I said, okay, please stop. 
presentation, let me just share my screen very quickly <laughs> and show you basically the system that I've built for the last two years, which kind of manifests a lot of the ideas, if not exactly the same screens that you just built. So yeah, I, I very much share your passion and your understanding for what the domain is and kind of went uh, very quickly from there. And, and I joined Wix as, as basically fourth co-founder and the VP engineering. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it sounds like all of your co-founders have some sort of background doing data and ML infrastructure. Yes, so yes we do. That, and that's like the main draw that attracted you to join Park as a mm-hmm. co-founder, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, how's the working relationship between all of the co-founders? Yeah. yeah, of course. So basically, the main division is that Yuval, the CTO, and I are mostly responsible for product and engineering. I'm leading actually the product and engineering teams, and Yuval is leading the more infrastructure-related teams at Quark, but we both basically are responsible, two of us on the product and engineering side. And Alon and Lior are more the, the sales, marketing, go-to-market teams. This is the areas where they focus. So this is basically right now the rough division, the engineering product part and go-to-market sales, in marketing and in, in operations, of course. So you mentioned as a VP of engineering, you're responsible for the product and engineering development. Yes, right? I'm actually doing both. I'm actually doing both product and the engineering. Like this is something I learned, Yuval also learned from Amazon. And this is something I also took from the organizational structure at Wix, where we're building it according to companies or or business lines. We don't have like a vertical of product and a vertical of engineering. We have basically two teams right now. One team is focused on MLOps related products, Mm -hmm. the more CICD analytics segments. And that team is is basically one team that has backend developers, frontend developers, and hopefully product manager and also a product designer. Basically the entire team, the entire business line and another business line another company that is more related on data ops the feature store in the future more product lines around that area and they too have backend they have front-end they should have a pm so this is how we're going to structure the organization yeah even though as an artist startup you already have pretty clear vision of how organizational structure go look like in upcoming years we kind of, you know, it's very hard for me to say something about upcoming years and one and a half year old, year old startup, you know, there's not a lot of clear cut, but yes, we all believe in that structure. We saw it working fairly well from our past experiences. And this is how we're thinking about building the company, building basically the product and engineering sides. Okay. So it's, it's a question of who we're going, you know, marketing is going to be also part of every product team or, or not, but a lot of questions around that. Yeah, I see. So let's dive a bit deeper into some of the key capabilities that are baked into the Quark platform. So I was doing mm-hmm. some research on the website and based on my reading, the platform included a view system, a serving layer, a data lake, a feature store, and automation capabilities. Would you mind explaining how the platform architecture is designed at a high level? Yes, let's talk about the most high-level architecture. We have two ways which you can use or deploy Quark. One is basically full SaaS version where you use Quark and the entire stack that you just mentioned. I'm going to dive in much more into basically as, as a full SaaS solution. And the second way to, to deploy Quark to use Quark is, is what we call the hybrid solution where we have basically two planes, a control plane, basically our web application 
the entire metadata of what you're doing with Quark and what we call the data plane or the model plane, which hosts all your models on all your basically data on. Because if you don't want to extract your data or take away your models, so we say no problem, we can install Quark, we can install ourselves as a SaaS solution, again, with the full advantages of a SaaS solution on your environment, on your VPC. So these are kind of the two distinct ways to use Quark. And what is Quark? What are the big pieces? So we have first the build system, okay, Quark as a full a machine learning engineering platform. Our focus is around the engineering part, the productionization part of ML. So the first piece of that is the build system, okay? The, the idea of the build system is basically transform or build your code, your ML code into a production grade ML solution or ML artifact, okay? Mm -hmm. The idea is to add kind of traditional build processes to machine learning models and allow data scientists to build, you know, immutable and tested production grade artifacts. Okay. Again, like the main concept around that is standardization. Okay. We want to have a build system that standardizes the ML project structure. Mm -hmm. So this is the build system. Once you have a build on top of Quark, meaning a deployable model artifact, we move on to the serving layer, basically the model deployment. In the model deployment, we have three distinct ways of deploying a model. One is as a batch process, mm -hmm. okay, just a, a regular batch process. Second is a real-time endpoint. And third as a streaming application. Okay, mm -hmm. But the general idea is you can have one build and multiple deployment systems. Okay, You can have a single build and choose how do you want to deploy it. You don't need to add any additional code or write any additional infrastructure if you want to deploy your model as a batch process as opposed to a streaming process. Okay, so this is an important concept for us that we're seeing something that's very valuable to our customers. Yeah. Having an agnostic way of building a model with no relation to the deployment system. I guess my only comment is like, you know, more and more mm -hmm. companies are start building real-time streaming application. So I'm sure like, you know, the need for those startup inference endpoints are going to be more important. Yeah. Actually, streaming is a very interesting pattern that we're starting to see more and more. Something I'm especially fond of. And not just real-time, but actually, yeah, you want to you have your models as inherent parts inside of a streaming or an asynchronous application. Very cool pattern that we are seeing. Mm -hmm. The next step is basically the data lake which handles all of the uh, data that the model produces, okay? This is the observability layer of the model. We basically record and transfer to the data lake, to Quark data lake, every invocation for your model, again, in order to have eyes on what the model is right now doing in production. Another part that kind of complements the system is the automations part, which basically gives you the capability to automate a lot of the processes that you are doing on top of Quark. Okay, we see that it's kind of a more mature pattern that people tend to use Quark with. I'll give an example. You can build and deploy via the CLI and via the UI, but in more complex or more advanced use cases or more mundane use cases, what you want to do is basically retrain and redeploy a model on some scheduling basis. You want to rebuild and redeploy every month, every two months, every week. You don't want to go into the system and build and deploy manually. Okay, so the entire life cycle is something that we automate for you. You can create what we call an automation. Mm -hmm. The automation that builds and deploy a model on, on some scheduling basis. You don't need to have an orchestration system. You don't need to do that with Airflow and everything else. You just have that built in on top of the system. 
This is the automation. And the second large part is the feature store. Basically, Mm -hmm. the two first-class citizens that we have in Quark are models, again, deployable entities, and second, features. And we see that relation between models and features is very important. Like the feature store is the first-class citizen inside the ML platform. See that connection, something that is strong and very efficient. Okay, so basically all the parts, the build system, the serving, data lake, feature store, and the automations are the building blocks of the Quark platform. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. I want to circle back to this concept of feature store, which we discussed a little bit earlier. And in fact, you have given a variety of talks explaining how feature store can help unify data pipelines for machine learning, right? It's a favorite so, topic for me. Yeah, definitely. So my question is twofold. First, what do you see as some of the big engineering challenges for teams to build an in-house feature store? And secondly, what do you envision as the future of the feature store ecosystem in the upcoming years? Okay, so regarding the engineering challenges, we do see companies handling rather well kind of a feature store or simple version of a feature store that is meant to be used for batch use cases, for offline use cases. Okay, they have the concept of specialized data tables or specialized data warehouses that are saying, okay, this is not just a regular data warehouse. This is a data warehouse where I persist features and I maybe create the concept of a point in time in order to understand how feature looked at different time perspectives, different timelines, but they use it for offline purposes. And this is something that we see teams with a lot of data engineering horsepower that are well. One of the big engineering challenges that I see around that area is the move to online systems. That's a different ballgame. It requires different know-how. It's not just a data engineering challenge anymore. It's production challenge. It's more of a software engineer domain. Now you need to build data store that should serve production real-time traffic. And again, the systems that you use are different. You don't have the power of data warehouses. You don't have a lot of the languages, a lot of the frameworks that data engineers are used to and like working with. So the transition of building a feature store that is only for batch use cases into a feature store that has an online leg, trying to cooperate between those two, and even creating a feature store for that supports streaming use cases or that supports, let's say, Kafka as a source. And this is where, you know, companies tend to understand like, okay, this is a big challenge. This effort requires to build a major system. I'm starting to see right now, I think that feature stores will become basically first-class citizens in companies' ML platform. If right now we're seeing that a lot of customers are trying to adopt, at least for Quark, trying to adopt a lot of first the CICD, the, the analytic solution, and then once they mature more a bit more, then they move on to adopt a feature store-like solution. I think feature stores will be adopted much sooner because companies, I tend to believe, will have much more online use cases for the models. And to have real online use cases for the model without a feature store and deploying multiple models with multiple versions at scale is a very challenging task once you don't have some concept of a feature store, you don't have to call it a feature store, but yeah. you need to have an online version of your data. You need to have an offline version of your data. Very fast, you come up with the basic notion of what we call today a feature store or just a dual database architecture that persists features in some way. Yeah, and that ties back to one of the earlier parts you mentioned about hybrid model between materialized and virtual. 
Or yes, yes, yes. Looking. Yeah. yeah, this is more of an implementation notion, but yes, the concepts are the same. You need a place where you have features and not persisted, but stored or manifested, whether they are materialized or non-materialized. This is more of a cost-effectiveness solution. The concepts still hold. Yeah, thanks for providing that perspective on some of the engineering perspective relating to building future stuff. So let's take off your engineering head and put on your co-founder head. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early-stage startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Quark's mission? Okay, so I think the last part of your sentence, like people who believe in the mission, we want to work with these types of people. We want to work, I want to attract people that understand the impact of what a machine learning engineering platform, what an ML platform can do to an organization, can do to a data scientist organization. So this is people I really want to attract. And second kind of lesson learned is that We go after people, again, with with kind of a hunger that want to be part of a strong team, that want to work in a fast pace on interesting problems, and people that want to be a bigger part of something. Like I see that in a lot of people that are working in corporations, which, of course, there's a lot of benefits in in working in large corporations. I'm not uh, saying anything bad about that, but it's a different perspective. Like working for, for Microsoft, working for Google, working for Facebook, being, you know, developing some solution under that umbrella. It can be super interesting, of course, but you're basically, at the end of the day, you're doing something very small, usually for a big company. That doesn't suit anyone. Some people, myself, again, in, in different periods of time, myself included, I want to be a bigger part of something that is smaller, want to be more involved in the product perspective, want to be more involved with how you do sales. They want to understand kind of the full life cycle. They want to talk with customers. They want to understand pricing. They want to understand all of these things. And, and typically in large corporations, these are opportunities that are less available, are less available for them. Again, with all the benefits of working on corporations included. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a pretty common attribute of any people who want to work in startup, which is reset, like that hunger to get out of their respective domain, wearing multiple hats and kind of stepping mm-hmm. in the shoes of various yeah. other functions. Yeah. One of my senior engineers that, that worked in, uh, in, not in, in a corporation, but in, uh, in a big startup, like told me a few months ago that he's amazed by how much built the pace that you don't have any technical debt hiding your back. You don't have any legacy systems that you really need to support. You don't have, you know, 10 years of engineering that hurdles every move you're trying to make. So the, the pace that you can go as a fresh, young startup that wants to, to prove himself and actually doesn't have a big customer base. And yet the pace where you can develop things, you can develop solutions, you can build things is uncomparable. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually changing pretty well to my next question. So you said, a startup like the pace, the velocity is important because you're basically working hand in hand with customers to build this solution together, right? So finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What are some of the challenges that your team have to overcome to find some of the early design partners and our customers? Mm. So one of the challenges, again, it's not specific to Quark, I believe, is kind of the, the what you said, the cold start problem, kind of a chicken and egg problem. You, you have no customers. It's very hard to attract the first batch, the first set of believers, the people that will help you build the first version of the model. So we used a lot of our personal relationships with other companies in Israel. And I must say that the Israeli ecosystem, that manner is is simply amazing. I wasn't aware of that until I went out and experienced that firsthand. 
like the amount of people that say, hey, listen, no problem. I, I know that you're very early. I know that you basically have nothing to show for, but, but let's start. Let's build something. I believe in that. I understand which position you are in. Let's build it together. I'll be your, your design partner. There are actually companies that really like to work with small Israeli startups in that way. The push of the Israeli ecosystem, that kind of a low bar of entry they propose to young startup, I think that is, is super valuable for the entire ecosystem because a lot of companies at these days, a lot of you know, Israeli startups are, are starting to basically approach these set of companies that are well known to work with the design partners, to work with companies at that stage. And then when they want to go over you know, larger markets, larger, tougher markets where they have no personal relationship to rely on, so the product is much more mature. You have much more to show for. And that's yes. so, usually also because of the, the nature of the, the Israeli personality that they kind of say to first, listen, this sucks. This doesn't really work well. I want this, this and that. So with that brutal honesty, it's much more efficient to build like a first working, a happy version of your product. Yeah, I see. So it sounds like it's really about leveraging the startup ecosystem and other professional network. In, mm-hmm. in Israel to view awareness about Quark and, you know, iterate on your product over time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's transitioned super well to my last question in our main conversation, which is, can you describe the state of the ML engineering community in Israel? I think that in, in one word, it's it's booming. There are a lot of companies, I know why, like there's a big concentration of companies in the ML monitoring space. I, I don't have a clear notion of, of why, but we have a lot of companies in that area, a few that are doing feature stores, a few like us that are providing a much more an ML ops, like an ML platform, if you're focusing on model monitoring. So a lot of companies in Israel around that ecosystem. I think it's more of a young compared to the cybersecurity market in Israel that we have a lot of unicorns. So the ML ops ecosystem in Israel is still in its early stages. But I think that kind of matches the industry as a whole. Yeah. Like there aren't a lot of unicorn startups in the MLOs in general. It's an up and coming field, a relatively new field. There's a lot of players that are trying to earn the trust, earn their spot over the top. Yeah. And in terms of customer base, like do most of the startup in Israel also sell to clients, enterprise and other organizations within Israel or like also a global perspective in mind, maybe selling to the rest of Europe or even North America. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on internationalization of the uh, go-to-market. Yeah. yeah. So in the last few years, suddenly there is early market. So suddenly companies tend to start with, again, I'm, I'm talking in very much in, in general, but I shouldn't speak for the entire startup ecosystem. But from my perspective, we do see a lot of young companies that are approaching first the Israeli market, trying to figure out the product, trying to sharpen their value proposition against and with companies in Israel. And then they're going after the big markets. Usually they start off with the nice, cozy swamp of the Israeli high-tech ecosystem, and then they move to nationalization. Whether it's Europe or North America, I think the main market is, is North America, but it really depends on what you're doing, on who you're, you're targeting. Basically. Yeah, thanks for pointing that perspective. So Ryan, at this point of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, and we can ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, Name three people in the MLOps community whose work you admire. Okay, name three people. So it's not really 
not just MLOs, so I think it's worth mentioning anyway. So first of all, Andrew Angie, trivial, but I'll say it anyway, that I really got into machine learning because of him, because of the, the introduction in course. And I think I'm probably not the, the only one, probably like 10,000 people more like me. Second is Matei Zaharia, the co-founder of Databricks, which I really, I, I got to meet him in uh, AI Summit in, in Amsterdam, and I really admire his work around the Spark and Amiflow. And, and third, one of the Israeli perspective is Bar Moses, the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo, which I really like what they're doing. I really like the, the category they're creating. I really like the content they're doing. I think they're doing a, a marvelous job. Yeah, those are great, great profiles. Number two, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better engineering mindset? engineering mindset. Okay, so one of the books I read recently and, and had a lot of effect on my leadership mindset as well as the engineering is Principles, the one that Ray Dalio, the famous hedge fund manager, wrote, which is a great leadership book from the type that I really like that has you know lists on top of that. So this is, okay, one very good advice. Second, very good advice. Three, very good advice. Instead of just fluffing around a lot of stories, mm -hmm. so a lot of really condensed advices for typical use cases. I really like how this book was being structured, even though I didn't fully agree with, of course, with all of his points, but I really like the structure and the coherence of that book. Yeah, so it was definitely an excellent book to recommend. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single message to all the early stage Uh, ML engineers on LinkedIn, what could you say? So taking, again, that, that kind of self-service approach, I would say that understand your role at the game. And I think that you shouldn't be building a one-off solutions to every model that you now need to deploy into production. I think the mindset is to automate your work with existing tools and have a self-service mindset. And this is a great way to grow both yourself and the adoption of machine learning throughout the organization. See, so adopting a self-service mindset and really leaning into automation. Um, so Ran, I really enjoyed our conversation today and learning about your educational background, your time working at the Israeli Intelligence Corporation, Central Experience working at VMware, leading ML platform team at Wix.com, as well as your current journey with Quark, building an end-to-end -end machine platform to augmented ML processes for small and large enterprises. You know, I think some definitely valuable lesson to learn both from a hiring perspective on, on engineering talent as well as, you know, finding early design partners to some of the more technical aspect of building a feature store or CICD view system that a lot of people are going to appreciate as they dive deeper into the content of MOPS. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look, dive deeper and check out the Quark product if they're interested in it. So yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you have a great dress. Yeah, of course, me too. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.